Welcome to the Missio Day podcast. Missio Day is a family of Jesus, joining God as he makes all things new in Chicago. Check us out online at missiodaychicago.com. If you've been around it all, you know some of the ways that I share that my family teases me, right? So if you've been around, you know I'm a words of affirmation person. You probably could hear in this passage, this is my kind of passage. I tell you how they all tease me because I say, I profess my love really quickly, right? On the phone with Gigi, if I talk to her 10 minutes later, each conversation, I love you. Okay, I love you. And they tease me, love, love, love. That's one of the teases in our family. When it comes to me. Oh, love, love, love. I got it. I got it. This is one of my passages. And so if you know that tease of me, you're like, great. Melissa's in this passage. It's like abounding in words about love, love, love. But I want you to know I'm going to throw you a curveball this morning. So in case you just thought we're going to just have to sit here and listen to this words of love moment from a words of affirmation person, we've got something fun, fun coming, a curveball. Let's just call it. So if you've been here, we are in, uh, we are actually finishing the first part of a two-part series in the book of Ephesians. This first part is called Rooted and Established, and each week we've just been taking language from each passage as this letter has been written to the early church to encourage them about all the truth and the plans and purposes of God and the power of God and the prayer of the um, apostles over the people who are now figuring out how to become the church in Christ. Remember, that's a huge part of the language is that participatory language that we have now in Christ. If you read this, if you're a mark up your Bible person, mark up all the in Christ, in him language, because this is a call to the church to know who God is, God's plans and purposes, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the whole shebang of the fullness of God and God's will in Christ and where we are as the church because of God's will. So we've been talking about all of that plans and purposes and power. We talked about how all of this participation we're invited into is a free gift of grace. Grace that has been given by faith alone and not through works. We've been talking about how um, our whole lives, therefore, are going to be able to flow out of this if we're able to first root and establish ourselves in all of what's going on in Ephesians 1 through 3. We talked about uh, the temple language, the household language, and the body language, all used to identify us in that participatory way as followers of Jesus, now Jew and Gentile, joined together in Christ in unity, not sameness. That's what we talked about last week. Really important. We're joined together in this messy, holy, very real work of figuring out unity and not sameness. Fellow citizens now together, marking the very presence of God in our world today. And we talked last week how we only can be the best version of ourselves if we all bring the full real you to the community that is the expression of church in this place and time for us right here in Wrigleyville in this place and time every expression of local church only is the fullest version of herself if you bring the real full you to that community so we've been talking about all of this and if you were here last week some of this sounds familiar I know everybody can't make it every week that's why I always try to give us a reminder of where we are in the flow but if you were here last week you know I got 
got a little fiery about some of this. And I told you, it's because I love this stuff, you guys. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, relational unity together, now invitation to us, participation, plans, purposes, power, and us as the church living in that. You know I got fiery because it's a big deal to me what it looks like to live in this relationship that we've been invited into. And you know, I got fiery because I originally missed part of this, the here and now implications of being saved in this faith faith by grace alone. I missed the here and now, not just saved from something, but saved into something that matters a lot. Because when I keep hearing news about ways that we've been hurt by the church or where uh, Christian ministries have, have messed up and it, stories of a abuse or corruption. I have to remember any stories of real hurt from real churches that have happened that are represented in this space. I have to remember that this is so important because you guys are little expression of this holy temple like really, really matters. Every little expression really, really matters because the way we do this, we want to keep these truths before us and hold them as sacred because this matters as God's presence in the world today. And so I want to, I get fiery because I want to hold this up and I get fiery because all of this Ephesians one to three stuff, all of this, we have to hold on to this foundational stuff like love of God, love, love, love expressed in this abundance language today. We have to hold on to this when we need to talk about other stuff as the church, the love, 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 and then there's all the other stuff that we talk about. For example, Ash Wednesday at the service that we're going to have this Wednesday, entering us into Lent, we, we have to also talk about the reality of our mortality, our need for a savior that leads us to repentance. We need to talk about that. So important that we are rooted and established in this Ephesians 1 through 3, love of God, plans and purposes stuff when we talk about things like mortality and confession and repentance. And it's really important when we talk about today, yes, the love of God, but we also are talking about suffering in this passage. And it's really important because when we talk about the rest of Ephesians, which we'll pick back up in after Lent, we have to remember to stay rooted and established in these truths so when we go into the other things we're talking about, it doesn't become a to-do list to be a good Christ follower. You know what I mean? We have to stay rooted in this first. I mentioned this a little while ago, and I think the book of Ephesians is so well summarized by Watchman Nee in this tiny little devotional that's lovely. Um, He was a, a leader in the indigenous church movement in China. And he points out this three-part movement of this book. And he says that uh, first we have to talk about our position in Christ, which he summarizes as sitting. First we sit in this place of grace that is by faith alone, not by works, so no one can boast. We sit in our participatory location as being seated at the right hand of the Father in Christ uh, from 2.6. So first, we must sit because the next part of this little, this little book of Ephesians, not this little book, this book walks us through it. I recommend it. Um, but the letter to the Ephesians, the next part is how we walk our life, living out this unity in the world. How does this overflow of being rooted established, how does that work out in our walking in this way of Jesus and then how we stand in our attitude toward the enemy in this place where there is still spiritual warfare in our world how will we stand we're going to talk about all of that but first 
be rooted and established in how we sit in our core identity. Watchman Nee says this in summary in really, really little print. (laughs) Most Christians make the mistake of trying to walk in order to be able to sit, but that's a reversal of the true order. Our natural reason says if we do not walk, how can we ever reach the goal? What can we attain without effort? How can we ever get anywhere if we do not move? But Christianity is a strange business. If at the outset we try to do something, we get nothing. If we seek to attain something, we miss everything. For Christianity begins not with a big do, but with a big done. That's like a mic drop statement. I love that. It starts with a big done. What's done? Everything that we've been talking about in chapters one to three. And so this is designed to make sure that we start from the sitting, our position seated with Christ at the right hand of the Father. And uh, Watchman Nee links this beautifully. I didn't know this when we started out with this being about Sabbath rest in this season that we've been talking about, but he links it to Sabbath rest. Remember, yes, God created for six days, but then Adam and Eve were created as humanity the first act was rest sabbath sabbath was the first thing that came to adam and eve before the uh the uh engaging with the um be fruitful and multiply and till the earth and eat the fruit and all of that stuff first rest start with sitting in this worshipful posture of participating in relationship with god We have to first rest. Whenever you take your Sabbath, I know it can be different for different people, but just so you guys know, for me as a pastor, I've learned I need to take my Sabbath on Saturday because I want to come to this space as the first fruits of being rested and being with God, not come crashing in and rest after this. I want this moment to be the first fruit evidence of rest that I have just spent the last day in worshipful joy, which yesterday Yesterday meant going out to a meal and doing some thrifting. I do not love thrifting, but my 15-year-old does, and I love our 15-year-old. And so we went and did some fun things just for delight, just for delight, and it was wonderful. So anyway, I say all of that to encourage this, this concept of Sabbathing actually helps. I would encourage you, if you don't know where to start with Sabbath practice, read Ephesians 1 through 3 whenever you take your Sabbath weekly and just sit there for a hot second and be like, this stuff's good. I am rooted and established in this. So rooted and established, everything else we talk about is the church first in this love of our triune God. So this chapter three includes a lot of the language and themes that we've already been talking about. You'll hear a lot of the same language um, and some of it will seem very familiar. But what we notice in this portion is that what Paul seems to be doing is finishing or continuing with that prayer that we studied a few weeks ago in chapter two. Remember we talked about Paul starts praying a prayer for the church, but with a purpose, prayer with purpose, so that you will know Christ. Remember that, that prayer? He seems to pick back up on on that prayer. So we start in 14, what Chloe just read to us, with this deluge of delight, right? If we skip ahead in chapter 3 to 14, we see him saying, for this reason, I kneel before the Father. He's praying again. And, and listen to the abundance language that we heard all through chapters 1 and 2, right? The, the over-the-top abundance. I kneel before the Father, from whom every 
every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he'll strengthen you with the power through the spirit in your inner being so that purpose, Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So he's continuing this prayer. But when we have to be watching, especially when you're studying scripture in pieces like this, right? We aren't sitting and doing the whole book in one sitting. So when we take a portion, we have to take note of certain things. And here we notice as we start into this continuation of prayer, we start that he says, for this reason. Okay, that's one of those things in the Bible when we see things, therefore, because of this, for this reason, just stop. If that's where your devotional for a morning starts, make sure you go back and see what are we, what's the thought we're continuing from, right? So for this reason, what reason? Well, we look and in 314, I'm sorry, 314, he starts for this reason. That's the prayer Chloe read. Well, let's go back. He actually starts chapter, what we indicate is chapter three, uh, verse one, in the same way, for this reason. So what's the, what's the reason? So if four one is for this reason, all of this, can you see that? That's all like, he sort of pauses for a second and he goes back for this reason. Well, for what reason? For the reasons of every single thing he wrote before. So everything we've been studying up to this point, he says, for this reason, be rooted and established in the love, 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 right? The abundance language, all of that comes up. But I want to go back and see for this reason, before all of this, this is why I'm getting to this prayer. But what's in between in those two paragraphs for this reason? Because he seems to trail off for a bit. I mean, it seems to us like he's trailing off. But it's actually a specific tool of crafting a written argument. You build your case on something. But when you're first reading this, it feels like, okay, so here's my, this is the passage for today. You don't have to be able to read it. Don't worry. But when you're reading it, you're like, for this reason, he gets back to for this reason. And then the deluge of delight is here. But there's these full two paragraphs of like, parenthetical pause where he seems to lose his train of thought. And I was laughing about this because I'm a verbal processor in case you all haven't noticed by now when I get off on something parenthetically for a really long time. I came by it honestly. Here's where I tell my excuse. My parents usually watch this. Sorry, dad. uh, Later in the day. So here's the thing. When we were growing up, I'm the middle of uh, three sisters. Um, I'm the middle one. And mom and sisters and I would just be having a conversation when we were all together. We'd go something like this. Like, well, do you remember that place where we got your when we looked for your prom dress, where? Oh, the one, you remember with the salad, with the goat cheese. And then we'll start off, somebody be like, you know that cute little goat farm we always passionate? I always wanted goats. And we'll be like, oh, Andy wants chickens. I don't know where to put chickens. He's sure we have chicken. We'll be, and my dad will be like, did you, did you get the prom dress? We'll be like, what? Are you even listening? And he'll be like, I am literally trying so hard to listen to you. I have no, I, where, where are we talking about? And so that you can feel that way. But if you know the art of rhetoric, which we don't usually study, but this is not Paul just getting lost in a trail of thought. Like we, I do, I do, I won't project. I do. This isn't that. It's something else in this rhetoric where this ancient art of what he's using to build an argument. And so what we see, because we remember the full arc, right? We've been building this whole thing, plans and purposes. We start a prayer for the church. We identify the church. Then we say this pause, and then he goes into this deluge of 
love, 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 right? This super abundant language of being rooted and established. What's this pause that is intentional for him, but looks like a digression for us? So he's already unpacked huge cosmic truths. I think that what's happening here is that Paul can identify at this point in the letter, which would be read to the church. You would just all be sitting here and someone would be reading this and you would just take it as a full sermon. At this point in the letter, some people are like, who is this guy? He knows that. He doesn't know, these, know all these people. He might know some, but certainly not all. And so they're reading a letter with great spiritual authority in its language, right? And they're probably starting to wonder, who is this guy and why should we listen to him? It's a fair thing. So what Paul is doing is he's pausing for this part and he's giving his credentials. For these two paragraphs, he pauses to say why he should be trusted with what it is that he's bringing. And the fascinating part about him answering the who are you and why should we listen, what are your credentials? Fascinating language that he uses, verse I didn't write down all the verses, but I have them here. Verse one, he starts right out. He identifies himself as a prisoner. And then he goes on in a couple more verses and he talks about how he is, um, wait, I'm sorry, uh, Rebecca, I went ahead. In another one, so we have uh, the, I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Verse seven, I became a servant of this gospel. And then verse 13, don't be discouraged because of my suffering for you. And so this is the curveball, right? And you know, I love to hang out how wide and high and long and deep is the love of Christ. Like I love that stuff. Yes and amen. But here we have to say, Paul includes in his credential suffering and there's the rub or so it would seem like there's what we think. We don't just stop at the happy, pretty parts in scripture. So living in this love participating in Christ, being the church together by the power of the spirit, we have to acknowledge when a rub like this happens because suffering is a really legit rub for many people. I mean, many people in this room, we talk about this openly. We wanna be a place where we can also include where life is hard, it's really hard. So many rich, good passages in this, uh, uh, morsels in this passage. And when I was using my colored pens to talk about all the beautiful places where I could dwell richly in this passage with you and talk about where things are pointing back, what the Bible Project called hyperlinks, words that hyperlink to bigger truths said elsewhere. I would love to sit and talk with anyone and geek out with my colored pencils on this passage. I will do it. But today, we're going to talk about the rub. What is up with the love of God and suffering coexisting together. That's up. Now, what follows for just a minute here is a moment of me sharing some thoughts and observation. I am not able to do this morning a full theology on suffering. I am not going to be able to even touch the problem of the existence of evil right now. These are what I'm not going to do. I will likely miss in my little moment of observation an important point about suffering that you and your personhood that you have experienced and for that I apologize this is not all-encompassing I would love it if that is the case if you reach out I want to hear I am learning I am growing please let me know if I've missed an important suffering vantage point but here's the truth that we all know I'm no need to convince every anyone like suffering does exist all around us so I want to share a couple thoughts though for us to consider before diving in to this suffering in this passage today number one an observation, and this one is the me camp, okay? I grew up in a narrative about my right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And so for those of us 
who grew up in a comfortable place in society, that was our narrative as little growing up Americans that we had these rights and that the right included uh, good stuff. Good, we had a right to good stuff. I don't know. Like that was sort of like the narrative. So what happens is sometimes if something goes wrong or we feel and we encounter suffering, the plot line doesn't match what we experience. And therefore, our first question is why? Why suffering? But I propose to you that if you're in a different spot in the world, that's not the biggest question that you're asking when you encounter suffering. But I know a lot of people, and listen, it's, it's okay to ask that question. The Bible is full of why, God, why? If you shake your fist, like that's totally okay. Hear me there. It's okay to lament, to grieve the why. But what I do hear underneath the why sometimes is a confused message that thinks that the blessing of God, that God bless us, that that's a prayer, right? But it, and if it becomes an identity mark, like, and we are blessed, then we think that suffering means that that blessing has been removed. And that's just not true. That's not biblical. There's no foundation for that. But we've picked up something that thinks that blessing or love is removed when suffering happens. And that's just not true. But it's an easy plot line for somebody who grew up hearing that she had the right to not suffer. So I just propose to you that that might be an interesting thought to consider. Because here's what else I'll say. For those in this same society in marginalized positions due to race, due to uh, economic status, for sure, due to education uh, status, due to physical ability. For anyone who's experienced marginalization in this same uh, big stream plot line, they're sitting there thinking, "Uh, the land of opportunity, are you kidding me? They have a totally different suffering on top of their suffering because the world around them is speaking a narrative that they know not to be true, that some of you know not to be true. So it's like a suffering on a suffering because you're experiencing it and it's like the world around you is like, it's no big deal, so you have the right to be free and happy. And so I don't understand. And so that leads to cumulative trauma, some would call it, or collective trauma of whole people groups. We just acknowledge that. We have to say like, they're suffering on suffering when we don't stop to acknowledge the real ways that suffering exists because if we accidentally pick up a plot line that we just mentioned in point one is not biblical to begin with. Okay, does that make sense? Now there's a whole other group which is everybody else not here in our narrative and I don't have a lot of experience. So I was texting with Allie, Allie and Todd Seeley, two of our deacons there in um, Uganda right now, serving with the organization that Allie works for and I was like, check me on this, right? This is me texting. Um, I said, check me on this because I think that in other cultures the first question with suffering isn't why. They full on expect suffering in the reality of every day. There's no plot line that says there shouldn't be suffering. So yes, there's grief, there's lament, there's why God, why? Yes, but they get faster in cultures that have never heard that suffering wasn't part of the reality. Nobody's saying you won't suffer, right? They don't have the big pause on the why, or they don't maybe get stuck in the why. They cry out, but they don't get lost long in that because the suffering is unfortunately expected. So they turn maybe more quickly to, but I trust you as I wait. And this, all of these points of observation bring me to this for now. We know suffering is real. The Bible never says it's not going to happen, and it never says that when suffering does happen that it means anything about God's love or blessing upon you. It doesn't mean that or like that the love has been removed. Suffering is heavy. 
and it matters. It matters to us, your suffering. It matters to the heart of God, your suffering does. It does not indicate God's absence, but rather suffering indicates the reality of God's kingdom being initiated but not yet fulfilled. We talk about that a lot here because I want us to stay rooted and established on where we are in the cosmic plot line. And that means that we are still in a place of suffering until that beautiful end that is, in my, my opinion, I'm still in Melissa's zone here. I can't prove this either. I think it sometimes is harder for us to hold on to that cosmic plot line because we're getting further and further than the early church did on this imminent return of Jesus. They were still living and walking with people who were like, yeah, I met him in person. I saw that. I experienced that. That was my great grandma who was healed. There was something a little bit closer. I think sometimes for the American church, it's harder and harder to hold, not just American, the current church to hold on to this cosmic plot line, real tangible hope because we're just getting a little further. And it'd be it can be hard to hold on with imagination amidst so much suffering, so much suffering in the world. And we have access to all of it because our phones are telling us every bit, everywhere. It's like more than we can hold. Some argue more than we were meant to hold, but it's so real. How can we not hold the real truth? But we have to also hold on where we are in the plot line. And we are called to hold on to that, even when it feels really, really hard to remember in the midst of reality of suffering, because this is where we still are in our plot line. Have any of you guys seen bedtime stories? It's a really cute movie. I recommend it. Like, it's probably PG, so it's really, everyone can watch it, and it's super sweet. But there's this moment where, in bedtime stories, Adam Sandler is, like, all giving up because of the suffering, you know, in my analogy. It wasn't real suffering, but, you know, it's like he's in the bad part of the plot, and the narrator comes and kicks in and starts narrating that he's in the bad plot, and Adam Sandler's like, what? This is it. This isn't a happy ending. This is what it is. And the narrator says, what? This is the end? I thought you were just in the sad part. And I feel that way sometimes. Like, this is just the sad part. There's more. There's still more. But we're so long in the sad part that it's hard sometimes to hold on to it. We haven't experienced the end, the bedtime story, happy ending, right? But we haven't experienced the fullness. And so the, sometimes the very sad part that we still are in is, is hard to hold on and make sense of suffering. Okay. That was Melissa's parentheses observation sideline in this whole thing. I'm going to get back to the text now and not just my observations on suffering. It was like, great, I thought we were just in the sad part. Where are we in the cosmic story? It's important to remember that when we hear all this stuff about being a prisoner, being uh, a servant, and suffering. It's important. So let's look at these things that where Paul identifies, because not just he's saying this, he's not just like, it's really hard to be me. No, you guys, he's using this as his credentials. His authority for what he's speaking about the truth of God comes from these identifiers. It's super strange, right? Prisoner, let's start there. Lynn Coick in her um, uh, commentary on Ephesians points it out this way. The Romans would hardly imprison Paul for preaching about a Jewish Messiah to the Jews. His claims about Messiah Jesus was for all people, and that strikes at the heart of the pagan empire. What does this mean? He's proud to be a prisoner of the pagan empire if it means that you hear the good news that Jews and Gentiles can all be united in Christ now. He's like, yes, I'm going to speak that truth. And even if the pagan empire doesn't like it, I will gladly say I'm a prisoner for that 
truth for the sake of the Gentiles. You guys, it was disgraceful to be a prisoner. This was not something you bragged about, but he was one who said, yes, but I will stand in this position as a prisoner because I want you to hear this amazing truth of those who were at enmity have been joined. It only could happen in Christ Jesus. And so he is happy to be a prisoner if it means God's plan happens and that we all hear about it because it's really important that we know in order to live into it. No shame. Second one, servant. Also not something you brag about in that culture. It was just a truth of social status. And their whole social status stuff, you guys, books and books, it's so complicated. But it was a really big deal. And it was the water they were swimming in. They understood how that whole hierarchy thing worked. And you did not brag about being a servant. But he is so willing to make himself a servant to Christ. No problem for Paul. So that much is made, verse 8, of the boundless riches of Christ. I will be a servant to Christ to have this happen. He says this task was given to him by revelation. That's his credentials and why. Like God gave this to me and this mystery, he talks several times about the mystery of God's plan. In case you're wondering what that is, it's chapters one and two, especially one. So that mystery was given to Paul and he's like, I'll become a servant for this. No problem. Willingly and on my own, nobody put me into servitude except God gave me this mystery and I accepted servanthood of this mystery that has been revealed to me. So that's why he's willing to use that language. What about the suffering? You guys, Paul goes on about his suffering in multiple places. Again, stuff you don't brag about. In other places like 2 Corinthians 11, read his list. He talks about suffering, being shipwrecked, being beaten, being imprisoned, being hungered, like to the point of almost starving, right? So thirsty, just uh, mocked, all this stuff. He, wear, he does his whole list. 2 Corinthians 11, you can see it. But he's wearing it like a badge of honor. It's part of his credentials. How can that be the key is that he is suffering for the kingdom of God he is suffering for the gospel of Jesus here's another disclaimer and it's very important this morning we are not called to suffer in general please hear that it's suffering for the kingdom so if somebody misuses language that it's your call to suffer in a toxic work environment it is just your cross to bear to suffer in an abusive relationship or you just are called to be one who will suffer amidst harassment or bullying no that's not biblical at all you guys hear this get help we are here that is not what anyone is called to suffer the suffering that is biblical is talking about suffering for the sake of the other to be entered into the fullness of God's abundant, rooted and established, over-the-top deluge of delight, love and saving. That's, I will, su- I will give of myself if you can flourish, not because somebody with the higher power is like forcing a suffering just for the sake of suffering. Hear this, that is not true. What it is, what it does look like, biblical suffering is suffering for kingdom purposes, for kingdom justice, for the gospel of Jesus Christ to be known. That's where the suffering is. I willingly, Christ's self, willingly gave of self, not forced, willingly gave of self for the flourishing of others. That's the key to the biblical kind of suffering we're talking about, just to be clear. Let's listen, not to me, but to Jesus for a second. In Matthew, uh, picking up in 510, this is as he's wrapping up the Beatitudes. The last one is, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. 
the righteousness, the right, the right way of the world according to God. That's the, the right living, the rightness. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Because of me and what I am doing. Blessed are you if you will willingly suffer for the lifting of another in my name so that my good news can be known. I went off of the words of Jesus again there at the end, sorry. So, but like rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So we can look at it in the life of Watchman Nee. According to his bio, he suffered greatly. They identified his suffering uh, in the midst of his ministry to this church, starting this uh, church movement in China. And they, they, uh, they say he suffered poverty, ill health, denominational oppression, or excuse me, opposition, dissenting brothers and sisters in local churches, and imprisonment. He eventually died in prison and was willing to identify all that suffering as being for the kingdom, for the gospel. It was his willingness to suffer for that purpose. So that's what we're talking about. There is no shame to suffer for the purposes of God's kingdom when it is not being forced upon you. You are willing to do it. And that's what we hear in Paul's language. There is no shame at all. In Matthew 13, again, talking about Jesus, uh, Jesus gives several parables. And when he's talking about this kingdom, this kingdom that is the call, we can willingly suffer if it's for kingdom purposes, right? Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, sold all that he had and bought that field. That's his cost. He counted it, counted the cost of giving up everything for that kingdom. That's like a willing suffering. Do you know what I mean? Because of that kingdom. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had for one pearl. That's, that's the kingdom. That's the willing suffering kind of language that Jesus is talking about. And you guys, just to like make this real for us, right? Our suffering probably won't include prison for the sake of the gospel. It probably won't. We do enjoy certain rights, which includes the right to gather right here and to sing praises to Jesus. That's a beautiful thing that we shouldn't take for granted, but I kind of can sometimes. We probably won't suffer like a prison imprisonment. But what might suffering look like? I was just trying to like make this make some kind of sense in our context. The truth is sometimes it's willing to suffer by speaking out, even when it will cause you like relational or uh, reputation damage, willing to speak out when you hear somebody else's identity being in some way marred or discounted because of something about their personhood. And you just are like, I'm not going to stand for that. And it might cost you like the popularity of the moment or something. You're like, that's a cost that's real in our culture, but your voice is important. Suffer that popularity dig for the greater purpose if somebody's uh, intrinsic value is being questioned. Uh, Willing to speak out in the workplace when somebody's being mistreated, it may cost you your job. You know, willing to speak out if your job is being built up on the backs of unfair labor halfway around the world. 
spend your job. You know, like that might be a very real way that this suffering for the kingdom looks like in our world. We have to be willing to translate what might it look like for us in our world. And maybe we don't know what that is, but Jesus promises, like when you get to that place of being persecuted for the kingdom, the Holy Spirit will give you the words you need. Don't worry in advance, but it's worth the cost, you guys. That kind of suffering for the sake of kingdom purposes is worth the cost. And that's what we're told um, will be blessed, right? Uh, there, there's just the kingdom of heaven. We're living into the kingdom of heaven when we suffer in that way. So why would someone endure shame or suffering for this kingdom? I think that Paul was willing to, I think that we are willing to, when we hold in the front where we are in the plot line of the story. I think that's when we're willing to, when we're willing to say like, I can suffer here because I know this is just the sad part. As to quote bedtime stories. It's not really sad. It's full of joy too. But anyway, you know this isn't the end of the story. So when we're in this sad part and we hate some of the suffering that's going on and I sit with you in your pain and you're hurting and I'll cry out with you, why God? I will cry with you. We will just, yes, all of that together. But we also can remember it's just a hard part and there is an end to this story that fulfills all the things that Jesus was about. And so I want us to be a community that can hold our place in the cosmic plot line. So from last week, we talk about, and to this week, we talked about the kingdom citizens. Like that's the, that's the key to me of remembering where we are in this plot line. So that looks like us thinking about how can we be willing to endure suffering for the sake of others to find Jesus, to find their true place, to acknowledge our true place in this plot line that is not finished. And so this is why I wanted to talk about the beauty. We're going to end with the beauty, the deluge of delight in this passage, the love, love, love that is so super abundant. Just the expressiveness of this language. I want us to sit under these words of Paul. I am going to actually, if the worship team wants to come up, I'm not going to muck this up with language of my own that cannot match the super abundance. But I would say this, the important piece, I think for remembering where we are and before we go to Ash Wednesday, before we talk about suffering or being a servant of this gospel, before we go into how to walk and stand in the rest of Ephesians or everything else. Before we go to any of that, I want us to sit and remember that our position, even while we're suffering at this moment in the plot line, our position is rooted and established in a love that surpasses all understanding. So I'm going to read this section and then we're going to go into some ways to respond. So if it helps you, I mean, if you're visual, you can read your Bibles, but if you're not, I, I encourage you to just close your eyes and listen to this abundant language. Receive this kind of extravagant, over-the-top love because our roots need to be so deep here. Like when they're watching a storm with a forest and the trees are going crazy almost sideways, they're so deep-rooted that that isn't the end. I want us so deep-rooted that this is the kind of rooted and established we are. For this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his 
glorious riches. He may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide, how long, how high, how deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you, you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. It's super abundant language, you guys. Lord Jesus, will you just meet us in this moment of being rooted and established in the love that surpasses all knowledge, that fills us beyond measure from an overflow of who you are to where we stand in you. We pray that you will continue to guide us. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. We love to keep the conversation going. Find a weekly gathering or gospel community in a neighborhood near you. To find out more, check us out online at missiodechicago.com.